So just at the outset, let me just say, this text sends out a warning. A warning to each and every one of us who positions ourselves as judge, jury, and executioner over the biblically derived conscience of another believer. This warning falls on everyone who takes any level of delight, any level of fleshly satisfaction in declaring, publicizing, calling out the faults in others. Know this, declares our Lord Jesus Christ, you who practice such judgments will be judged by the same measure that you use. As James wrote in chapter 2, verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And the Puritan pastor Matthew Henry, commentating on these words in Matthew 7, asks an insightful question that many of us would do well to think through and answer for our own lives. Listen to this, what he asks. <clears throat> what would become of you? What would become of you if God should be as exact and severe in judging you as you are in judging your brethren? If he should weigh you in the same balance? That's a terrifying question, isn't it? What would become of you if God should be as exact and severe in his judgment of you as you are in your judgments of other people? The command is, judge not. <clears throat> and then in verse 1, we also see the reason for the command. Look at the second half of the verse, that you be not judged. And then third, in verse 2, we see an explanation of the reason or an explanation for the reason <clears throat> of that you be not judged. When Jesus says, for with the, me with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And fourthly, in verses 3 to 5, we will see corrective measures given to us by Jesus to help us avoid judging wrongly. And then fifth, we will give, Jesus will declare a warning about knowing how far and how wide to broadcast our correct judgments. So we're going to look first at the command in verse 1. Judge not. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the most famous and oft, often quoted text in Scripture? Perhaps many of you would say proudly, John 3.16. That most outstanding and glorious declaration of the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. That most sensational truth, dripping with the grace and the mercy of God, that he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel in a nutshell. It's often quoted. It's held up at football games. It's held up on the streets. It is widely known and well often quoted, but I propose that another verse takes the crown of most widely quoted and most well-known. That's Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, judge not. Judge not is an imperative in this text. It means it's a command that's been given to us by our Lord. And it's a command that if you do a little bit of societal and Christian re exegetical research, like you look into the Christian community and you look into the world community, you realize that this verse has either been A, completely misunderstood, or B, 
completely ignored by those who think that their judgments somehow are the Lord's work. We see both of those, and we're going to cover both of those. First, we're going to look at the misunderstandings of this text. It is a misunderstanding to understand this phrase as an absolute prohibition against any and all judgment. Okay? It is a misunderstanding of this verse to, un- to interpret it as an absolute prohibition against any and all judgment by one person or a church against another. Okay? We see this misapplication used all the time. We hear, I don't know if, it's, if, if you're like me, but you hear the, the phrase, judge not, trot it out. Every time someone calls into question the sinful, immoral, or uh, 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 not so good conduct of another person. You ever heard that? Judge not, judge not. And we always know it in the King James, don't we? Judge not, lest ye be judged. Judge not, they will say. In many ways, judge not has become the cry of all who would like to have the good parts of Jesus, like, I mean, they're all good, but those nice, kind of like gracious, loving parts, but not the commands and the Lord parts, right? It's the calling card of those who want to claim Jesus as Savior, but have little to no intention of actually submitting their lives to Him and obeying what He actually teaches throughout Scripture, You can even see it in Hollywood, right? The Hollywood types, the cultural icons, the rich and the famous, they've hopped aboard the Judge Not train, except that they've kind of morphed it a little bit. And maybe you've heard what they've morphed it to. Only God can judge me. You ever seen that? Right, that was made popular by an old uh, musician back in the 90s, got it as a tattoo, and now it's become a rather popular tattoo choice. Only God can judge me. And all of this because part of the culture in which we live, we will see that it's, there's another section we're going to cover in a bit, but part of the culture in which we live claims and clings to the belief that every person has the right to do whatever they like, whenever they like, however they like, without any critique or any evaluation of their deeds and their actions by someone else, even someone who loves them and who cares for them. I can understand if it's someone that doesn't like you and they're just trying to judge and condemn you for no reason, but we even don't like it when it's someone who has our best at heart. After all, some might say, who are you to tell another person how to live their life? Who are you to tell another person that their actions are wrong, immoral, or even sinful? Who are you to judge what's right or what's wrong for another person? Judge not. Judge not. And this aversion to hearing any level of judgment from somebody else is not relegated just to the world. It's not the world that's saying, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. But it's also common within the visible church of Jesus Christ. Have you noticed the increasing level of, how do you phrase it? Those who, the, the increasing level of people being turned off by the declaration of theological and moral absolutes as recorded in Scripture. <clears throat> if you are going to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, if you're going to claim to love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're going to claim to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, then you look at what he says in his book and you say, all right, I agree and I submit myself to it. But increasingly, more people who claim to be Christians are not actually reading what Jesus said and submitting their lives to it. 
I mean, you can say that you play for the Raptors. You can say you're a basketball player, but you're not a basketball player if you're playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Sorry, you're a hockey player. It's a completely different team. And if you say you love Christ, Christ has taught us everything he wants us to know in the, words of, in the pages of Scripture. And if we don't submit ourselves to what he says in Scripture, we don't love Christ. We can claim to be a raptor, but if we're playing for the Leafs, we're a leaf. We can claim to love Jesus, but if we don't love his word, we are not a believer. And so instead of exhorting and declaring the biblical truths, the moral absolutes of Scripture, because they sound judgmental and they sound harsh, we shy away from them. Instead of saying things like, Adultery and fornication are wicked sins in the eyes of the Lord, and anyone caught up in them ought to quit and repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness. We, instead of calling on people to stay far away from them, instead of calling on people to do what Joseph did and flee from them and run from them, instead of calling on those who say they love Christ but have fallen into those sins to repent and to turn away, instead, many have taken to choosing to blunt these seemingly judgmental tones in favor of a more permissive, inclusive voice, which eventually, inevitably leads to a lackadaisical, liberal, easygoing disposition towards sin, even in the church. And we ought to know that if you read Scripture, one of the clearest teachings of Scripture is that God hates sin. Sin is what necessitated Christ taking on flesh, making his dwelling among us. Sin is what caused Jesus to come here to live a perfect life and to die a death so that we might be saved by grace through faith in him. It was sin that did all this. Sin, God hates sin, and he knows that sin is destructive to our lives. Sin might lead to our physical death, and sin, if we don't come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, will lead to our spiritual and eternal death. It is a terrible thing. And so Scripture, because God loves us, reveals the, the, the terrible wickedness of sins. And the world that we live in wants to paint the things that God says are sin as virtues, and many, many, of the, many of us in the church sometimes will fall into the trap of not wanting to say what the Bible says. Instead of standing on the foundation of God's word and clearly, loudly, with passionate conviction, proclaiming the absolute truths of Scripture, that, for example, homosexuality is a grievous sin. That transgender ideology and practice are sins against both God and His creation's design. That lying in every single form is sinful. That stealing, no matter who it's from, is evil. That scripture forbids women elders and preachers. That God has ordained roles in the family between husband and wife. That scripture itself is the very breathed out, inspired, authoritative word of God. While all other claimants to such a lofty status are liars and products of worldly wisdom or demonic influence. That Jesus is the only way, the exclusive way, the only name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved, that no one comes to the Father except through the Lord Jesus Christ, and all religions, all worldviews, all worldviews, all ideologies that disagree with Jesus on this point are in error. All worldviews, all ideologies that disagree with Jesus on anything are in error, wrong, and even soul damning. 
And unless those who adhere to them repent of their idolatry, turn from their sinful rebellion against Christ, and turn to him in trust, they will be subject to God's righteous, furious wrath against that sin in hell forever. Now, such a list of absolute moral statements like that is, for many, too much to bear. And they instead prefer to speak of inclusive love, acceptance, compromise, conversations, deconstructing faith, revisiting ideas, reassessing biblical teachings, and a unity, a lot of people will focus on a unity that excludes clear stated convictions regarding the word of God. But is this what Jesus meant when he said, judge not? Was Jesus eliminating any and all tones of judgment among people and in the church when he said, judge not. Can anyone read scripture and conclude that pronouncing right judgment against sin is what Jesus is referring to here when he says, judge not? Can anyone read through the prophetic books? I mean, go through Isaiah, go through Jeremiah, go through Ezekiel, go through all the minor prophets. Can anyone read any of those without noting a number of staunch, clear booming judgments against the people of Israel for their sinful idolatries? Was Jesus forbidding every single form of critique, appraisal, or evaluation of another's words or deeds or conduct in this text? And the answer is no. If you read scripture, you will see that Jesus actually endorses right judgment. He'll say it elsewhere in John chapter 7, for example, when he said to the Pharisees, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge with right judgment. And throughout the gospel of Matthew, as we work through the gospel, you will see that he makes a number of judgments. Jesus actually will go on in verse 6 of our very own text to tell us not to throw the pearls before pigs and to give what is holy to the dogs. How do we know who those are if we aren't able to make right judgments to know who the pigs and to know who the dogs in question are. And if you look just a little bit ahead in Matthew 7.15, you will note that Jesus takes up the subject of false prophets, those who come to you in sheep's clothing but who are inwardly ravenous wolves. In order to beware of such people, we must constantly be appraising, evaluating, and judging, and teaching their teaching, their lives, and their fruits. In fact, you should be constantly evaluating everyone who is in leadership here at Winona Gospel Church all the time, evaluating their lives, evaluating their teachings, evaluating their fruits. You should be judging me every time you sit at, in church, evaluating whether what I'm saying to you is from God's Word or not. And this is what the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, saying, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And even more clearly, as you flip over in Matthew, we get to Matthew 18, verse 1, Jesus told his followers this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Did you catch it? Go and tell him. In order to tell, it must be evaluated. In order to tell, there must be a a vocalization of something that somebody has done against you. And in that sense, there's a judgment happening there, right? And Jesus himself 
never hesitated to express and to speak out against the sins of the Pharisees all through the Gospel of Matthew, most clearly in Matthew chapter 23. The religious leaders of the day, Jesus pronounced a series of woes against them for their hypocritical and evil deeds. For practicing, but, or for preaching but not practicing what they preach. For doing all of their deeds in order to be seen by others. By sh- for their shutting up of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for being blind guides who lead others into pits, f- uh, from being the ones who neglect the weighty matters of the law and focus really stringently on the smaller things, those who look nice on the outside and put themselves, make themselves seem really, really holy and really, really spiritual, but who on the inside are nothing more filled with nothing more than greed and indulgence. And Jesus consistently makes criticisms and evaluations of those people. And there's a very clear example of right judgment in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. You remember it, right? We preached through it maybe a couple years back. And this ought to clear up once and for all this idea that the words of Matthew 7 constitute some blanket statement against judgment in general as a whole. Because in the church, the Corinthian church, there was a member of that church that was engaged in in serious, repeated sinful conduct. And Paul wrote this to the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And Paul makes it clear here. This is a detestable sin. Even Roman philosophers, like Cicero, you've heard that name maybe in your your readings Cicero was a famous Roman lawyer and philosopher. He was no friend of the Christian sexual ethic, and he spoke to Rome's attitude towards such an act, that some man would have his father's wife, saying that for a man to have his father's wife was, and I quote, an incredible crime. An incredible crime. And yet, while Cicero, the man outside, was able to evaluate and critique this, those inside the church were afraid to judge the man. Instead, they tolerated him and his sins, and they, they rejoiced in how gracious they were and how accepting they were. And Paul said to them, You are arrogant. You are arrogant. You Corinthians encourage and accept a wickedness that ought to be met with judgment and discipline. It ought to be clearly called out as sin. And you should be mourning as a church, mourning that such a sin is being committed by one among you, grieving over the fact that someone in your midst has fallen that far. should be grieving over the enormity of the sin that is being practiced in your congregation. And what is the prescription that Paul gives? What is the solution that Paul gives as to how to deal with this man? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 2 says this, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is something Paul would command at least five more times in this very chapter. He continues in verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. You see, Paul makes it clear. The man is judged. The idea that the church is a place that is free from all judgment is incorrect. It's beyond me that we assume the church to be a judgment-free zone. No, it is not a judgment-free zone. 
It is the place where people judge one another rightly with charity, with grace, with mercy, in love for the betterment of another as they walk up and grow up into maturity in Christ. You can't do the Christian thing on your own. I can't live the Christian life on my own. We need each other to be consistently evaluating us in love and then pointing out areas of weakness so that we all can grow up together. And Paul lays out the consequences to this unrepentant man in verse 4. He says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the word for deliver here means to be judicially sentenced, to be handed over for punishment. So the unrepentant sinner here had been judged by the church and sentenced by the church with deliverance back into the domain of Satan. And the church judges, the church uh, judges said that the unrepentant sinner has forfeited the privilege of participation in the assembled church. A church that Paul took great pains to keep pure. That's what removal from the, among you means. It's a delivering over to Satan. The person is delivered over, handed over, without, and now must live without the care and the support of the church community. But listen, this duty is never entered into lightly. This duty is never undertaken with any relish or any delight or any fleshly pleasure at the deed. This is never enacted in a spirit of vengeance or retribution. This is a grievous situation over which the church ought to mourn and weep. The church must judge in this manner. The church that must judge in this manner must always make sure that they never abuse spiritual authority but must deliver the man over to Satan in grief and hope. That's what, it, the last, that's what the last statement means. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we deliver him over or her over in hope that the sinner might be shaken from their unrepentant attitude, repent and be fully restored to the community and be saved. And that's the goal. The goal of right judgment is always restoration. Never retribution. It is never punitive. It's always to shake the sinner out of their slumber and to have them restored to the church and reconciled to their Lord. So such a judgment means expulsion from the Christian community, out of the church assembled in the name of Christ, excluded from the joys and benefits of participation in the community, removed from the blessing of sitting under God's word preached and the ordinance administered, the hope that the removal, that this removal remedies the person's sinful disposition. So again, it's meant to be a redemptive act. The hope is restoration and repentance. And so you see, hopefully, that Scripture gives us times when not only is judgment permitted, but it's also mandated. So when Jesus says, judge not, it is not a blanket prohibition of all judgment. In fact, and know this, listen, this is, this is something you should all know, when you come to faith in Christ, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are automatically signed up for the loving, redemptive judgments, exhortations, warnings, encouragements, appeals, and appraisals of your fellow brothers and sisters who are walking the journey of faith with you. And this is not a bad thing. 
culture might make you feel like it is. They might want you to say so or think that. But this is actually a gift from the Lord given to each one of us to help and assist us in our growth up into Christ-likeness. So, while it is true that Jesus' command to judge not is not an absolute statement declaring all judgment off limits, it does, in fact, restrict certain types of judgment. Judge not does mean don't judge. And while there are some who jump at the opportunity to use judge not as a rebuttal to every external evaluation of their lives, we are finding ourselves, I don't know if you see it, but we're finding ourselves in the midst of a massive cultural shift from that older, uh, don't judge me, everybody can live the way that they want to live type of mentality to something new, a society that salivates at the thought of judgment. A society that loves to condemn and loves to cancel other people for their words and their deeds. And in this way, the command to judge not has almost, the pendulum has swung completely to the other side, and now it's almost completely ignored out in the world and in the church. The pendulum has swung in the direction of the opposite error. There is far too much judgment happening now. Far too little charity, mercy, and grace with other people, along with far too little self-evaluation. This is important. Self-evaluation is very important in judgment. These days, judgment seems relentless, doesn't it? As people from all sides of every single issue, small or large, important or not, berate each other and condemn each other and criticize each other and harass each other and assume the absolute worst of each other. Very few, it seems, take the time to measure their judgments, to gather the appropriate information necessary to make a right judgment, to sufficiently note and address one's own hypocrisy as they say or type endless inflammatory judgments against another. It used to be, who are you to judge me? But now it's ever increasingly moving towards, if you'd better step, you'd better step carefully. Because if you do anything wrong, if I can uncover any fault from your past, from your present, or even into the future, it will be published far and wide for all to see while everybody sits back and watches you receive your just punishment. And it doesn't seem like any issue is an, just a gray issue anymore, does it? Every issue seems to be radically polarized with each side of the aisle lobbing bombs of judgment and condemnation at the other side with freely and frequently, and often without regret. And to my great grief and sorrow, even so-called Christians are sucked into this black hole, into this vortex of merciless, graceless, tantrums of judgment i mean how can it be that those who claim to love and to serve and to cherish the lord jesus christ those who jesus has personally called to go into the world and make disciples those who are called to enter the fields that are ready for harvest those who are called to bring the message of the good news of god's mercy held out to the world held out to sinners in christ 
The good news of joy and delight that our sins can be forgiven and that eternal life can be our gift when we believe in Jesus. How can it be that instead of proclaiming this life-giving message, we have shifted to, being more, to spending more time judging and condemning the world that we live in? This is not what Jesus called us to do. Jesus made it clear in John 3, 17, the world's already condemned. It doesn't need you or I pronouncing more condemnation on it. Our message is one of reconciliation with God available in Jesus Christ. Our message is one of salvation made available in Jesus Christ. Our message is you can be forgiven and adopted into the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our message. If that is our message, how can it be that we are using the same talking points as the world, responding to things in the same ways as the world, using the world as the measuring stick by which we judge one another? How dare we divide from each other and condemn each other over the world's issues? That has got to go. This is uncharitable, self-exalting, and it's exactly what Jesus is warning against in John 7, 1. So Jesus commands us, judge not, and then he gives us the reason saying, that you, be, that you not be judged. And then he proceeds to explain what is meant by this in chapter 7, verse 2. Look at 7, verse 2. This ought to rattle you if you are one who is prone to judgment. For with the measure you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now this refers to two things, both the logical response of humanity, right? If you're, a, if you're known as a critical spirit, one who judges everyone, that will come back. That will boomerang back to you at some point in your life. But it also means that the Lord will judge us according to the measure we use in our own judgments. So what's the measure you use in your judgments of other people? I will say that most of them, if you believe this text, are frightening. And so ought to be eliminated from our practice. Do you default to a critical spirit? Are you known as a fault finder? one who finds something to disparage and denounce in almost every person or group, ensuring that everyone around you knows what you do not like about that person or group. Stop it. This ought to be eliminated from your practice because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you gain some level of fleshly human satisfaction as you condemn and judge other people? Do you seemingly jump at every chance to point out someone else's faults before examining yourself and or before gathering the appropriate information? If so, stop it. Because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do you impute motives to those that you judge? 
The English pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones taught that to impute negative motives or to assume negative motives of another is always a manifestation of the spirit that Jesus is warning us against here. So an example, we have been trekking through a global pandemic over the last year. And I have been grieved over the ease with which so-called Bible-believing Christians have just thrown out all grace and charity with each other in favor of thoroughgoing judgment and consistent imputation of motives. Let me say this, just as an example. In terms of churches and their responses to lockdowns, judgment and condemnation seems to characterize the discussion no matter what side of the coin you fall on. If you disagree with someone who, based on their reading of Scripture, decide to, one, follow the regulations set out by the province, it is wildly unhelpful and it brings disrepute to the name of Jesus when the critical spirits among us impute motivations, impute attitudes, impute dispositions like, you're a cowardly pastor or you're a cowardly church. You're a shill of a church. You're just brainwashed by the mainstream media. I've heard all of those. Know this, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And if, on the other hand, someone reads Scripture and comes to a different conclusion, that it betrays their conscience to close or to minimize the church, to restrict the gathering of the saints, if you disagree, it is wildly unhelpful to impute motivations to them to preside in judgment over them. Godly men and godly women are coming out on all sides of this issue, and if their biblically derived conscience reaches a conclusion, it is radically unhelpful for those who disagree to pronounce uncharitable condemnations against them and to impute to them motivation. You ought and I ought to always assume the best of the motivations of our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Be charitable and be gracious. Now, I will say, yes, there are probably some who reach their, their conclusions about this subject for unscriptural reasons. But before you pronounce any judgment, you need to know that. You need to have all of that information. There are most likely some cowards out there. And there are also most likely some defiant, nose-thumbing battle-seekers as well. But before you pronounce a judgment, you need to assume the best of your fellow believer. Know this. If you're a critical spirit, you are not the final arbiter on issues of conscience. You are not the authority over issues that are not directly addressed in Scripture. You do not and you cannot claim authority over another person's conscience. And if you do, if you criticize and condemn another because they are, their conscience in an issue is different than yours, and you, by your criticism and condemnation, have them act against their conscience as a result, did you know that the Bible says that you're the, sin, the sinner in that, in that instance? 1 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says this, speaking about food, uh, eating food, uh, there were some uh, um, 
Christians that had come out of Judaism and they had a difficult time eating certain foods because they were associated with idolatry, right? And so some would not eat and some would say, well, it doesn't matter if I eat because those idols are really nothing, so I'm just eating food. And Paul gave liberty to both to make that decision. But like it is in our day, the consciences of one group was trying to overtake the conscience of another and the conscience of another group was uh, getting irritated and agitated with with the other side. And so Paul says this, By your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. If you are a critical person, that means that you think that you're the stronger believer. And if you, so-called stronger believer, cause another weaker believer to go against their biblically derived conscience, you sin. So be charitable, be gracious, be merciful with each other. Assume the best of each other. And are you really prepared to answer for that? Because with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And here the Apostle Paul speak in Romans, the counsel of the Apostle Paul to those who would take upon themselves the role of critical judge. He says this in 14.1, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him but not to quarrel over opinions. See, quarreling over opinions has no place in the church. You can discuss them, but to quarrel has no place. Verse 4, he says, Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Meaning, each one of us, is servant to the Lord. He is our master. And for us to critically and wrongly judge one another is to judge the servants of the Lord, to judge someone who you have no right to judge. So 14.10, Paul finishes this. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. Are you the type that proficiently levels the harshest of judgments against others, but gets angry, insulted, defensive, or upset when others level the slightest of judgments against you? You know those types, right? The ones who can give it, but they can't take it? Is that you? If that is you, you are not cut out to sit in judgment against or over anyone else. And you need to get your own house in order before you start saying anything to anyone else. Does it satisfy you at any level to hear of another's faults? Do you incline your ear to gossip sessions, groups of people who speak in judgment of a person who is not among them? You remember the old picture, right? It used to be portrayed in old movies and old television shows in hair salons. You remember those hair salons and everybody would be sitting under those, uh, those big round things that, you know, their heads would be in those big round things. What is that? Is that a, I'm not a woman and I don't have hair. So is it a blow dryer or is it a, what is it? I don't know what the thing does. It dries your hair? All right. So your hair was wet. You got in this thing, blow drying the hair. And all of these, it's, you know, these old movies would show the women sitting next to each other and you'd, you'd, hear, you'd hear a conversation that goes like this. You didn't hear it from me, but has anyone told you about Alice? 
No, what happened? She broke up with her boyfriend and is dating already again. What? So soon? What is wrong with her? I know. I know. <laughs> See, this gossipy type of judgment, it even, that, that type of hair, now I know, hair dryer conversation, even extends into the Christian realm. It even extends to believers. And it's grievous to me that even believers are known for their judgmental, harsh, and critical spirits. That even believers can sometimes be known to everyone as holier than thou with their approach. Even believers can have this extreme lack of self-awareness as they, they lack any commitment to dealing with their own sins because they're so focused on pointing out the sins of everybody else. They would rather talk about other people's sins and shortcomings and preside in judgment over other people's sins than to mobilize everything in them to fight against their own. Do you find any level of gratification at hearing of some sin, some fault, or some failure in another person's life? At hearing something unpleasant about them, hearing something juicy about them? What if it's someone that you envy? Can you tell me that if it's someone that you're a little bit jealous of, if they make a mistake or if they have a fault or if they, uh, something is revealed in their lives that you can criticize, that it doesn't bring you some level of ha-ha. And there's some level of pleasure in you um, hearing it and calling it out and sharing it with others. You didn't hear it from me. If that's the case, know this. You are disqualified from leveling judgment against another person. And know this, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And it's time for you to start working on your own life before you start working on other people's. And while I don't have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or any of these other scourges of human communication... I do hear about quite often and get sent pictures quite often about what goes on in that wasteland. And as your pastor, I must say that there are times when I see some of the things that you or somebody, some people watching post online and I'm just simply grieved by it. I'm grieved by the merciless nature of it, by the lack of charity in it. Some of you are savants when it comes to judgment and criticism. Some of you are simply known as critical, condemning, judgmental people. Some of you are known as those who just let their opinions be known about everything all the time, letting your judgments fly on every subject on every worldly issue. And for those of you who enjoy posting inflammatory judgments, those of you who enjoy engaging in argumentation online with your fellow brothers and sisters with whom you should be having charitable dispositions, how often do you take the time to appraise and critique yourself? How often do you fall on your knees before God for help 
in dealing with your own sin? How often do you reveal your repentance on those same public forums? If you're out there <clears throat> constantly public con- publicly condemning everyone else and harassing everyone else, then you ought with even greater measure to be publicly repenting of the sins that you're battling against. Letting your faults be known and letting the measures that you are laboring to use to improve them be known. But if you're just simply out in the Wild West throwing stones at everyone, leaving a trail of diatribes, keyboard warrior beatdowns, and carnage for the entire online world to see, while never reflecting on your own self, letting others know, without letting others know that you too are looking to the Spirit to grow you in holiness, you need to stop. You need to take your hands away from that keyboard and stop typing anything until you mobilize your forces against your own sin. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatian church, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Stop thinking that you're doing the Lord's work. Stop thinking that you're being prophetic. Stop thinking that it is up to you to call out, criticize, and lack charity with your fellow brothers and sisters. There is a time for that, yes. But the ease with which we are doing it in our day, we need to pull that back and rein that all in. All permissible judgment in Scripture from one person to another must, at its very center, at its very core, be an effort to help another person to help them grow in Christ, to help them better follow Christ. And our attitudes in such judgments ought to be charitable, merciful, gracious. We ought to be committed to bearing with the burdens of the other. The judgments of one believer to another are for the purpose of increasing holiness, for reconciliation, for maturation in your faith, for betterment in your faith. If any of us judge with even a hint of vengeance, a hint of retribution, a hint of delight in the judging process, or seeking a pound of flesh from another, you sin against both your fellow believer and your Lord. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So Jesus has set out the command, judge not. And he set out the reason that you be not judged and then explained the reason. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And now fourthly, he sets out a corrective measure. Something we all ought to practice if we assume to take the role of judge and critic or appraiser of another person's life. Look what he says in verses 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So for those who love to judge and to harass and to harangue and to criticize online without ever looking inside first, foremost, and with the most vigor, Jesus calls you a hypocrite. 
And the speck in question here refers to the smallest bits, the particles of sawdust that might float in your eye as you're walking around. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day were so quick to point out and to condemn each and every speck of dust that they noticed in another person's eye, metaphorically speaking, right? The whole, be, the whole while being the picture of hypocrisy themselves. They were quick to judge others while they loathed to accept or to hear any judgment against themselves, let alone actually work at taking the log out of their own eye. Now, Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here, meaning an extreme picture, He's using the picture of the smallest piece of dust and contrasting it with the largest beam that you could possibly use to build or construct a house. And he's basically asking, how is it that we have become so adept at pointing out the small particle in someone else's eye while ignoring the humongous wooden beam in our own? How can we be so focused on pointing out each and every little sin in someone else's life when you know your heart well enough to know that you are... A big sinner, right? I know my own heart well enough to know that it's just like all of yours. I have to fight and battle against sin and temptation every minute of every day of my life. And I want to mobilize more forces in that battle than I do in the battle against judging you. Oh, how easy it is for us to spy out the dust in another's eye and to hide or justify the beam in our own. However, Jesus reminds us here that it's our own sin that ought to be larger in our own eyes than that of other people. And in my experience, it seems that the most judgmental people are the ones who are the least aware of this truth. The ones who are most forward and easy with their judgments and condemnations against others are the ones who almost never take the time to look at their own hearts. And have you noticed, right, we are so good at this. You ever noticed that in our penchant for judging others, we don't use the same standards for ourselves that we use for them? You ever notice that? We're pretty harsh with other people and pretty forgiving with ourselves. It's quite common for those who take a seat, uh, the seat of judge over another person's life to apply the faults of that other person, or of that other person, of the uh, other person to their person, to, their, to who they are. All the while, we find, uh, if we are aware enough to ever identify any shortcoming in our own life, we minimize it and find ingenious ways to justify it and apply our faults to our circumstances. Let me show, show you how that plays out, okay? When we're judging others, we apply it to their person. When we judge ourselves, we apply it to our circumstance. Now, what do you mean, Gino? Let me explain. Suppose that you see a mother and her young child walking through a mall or through a store that has both toys and candy. And the kids are walking behind mom and they're screaming and they're throwing temper tantrums and they're dropping in the middle of the aisle. I want candy. I want toys. Buy it for me. You guys ever been there? You ever seen that? Kid throwing a tantrum. Many of us will form a judgment about the situation. If you have kids, you know that because it's not our kid throwing the tantrum, we tend to apply our judgments to the person in saying things like, either that mother is a bad mother with no child-rearing skills, 
or the kids are simply misbehaved and spoiled. So we apply it to their person. But when it comes to us, we do things differently. Now imagine it's you who are the parent with the kids who are throwing temper tantrums and screaming in the middle of the aisle. Chances are you're not going to say about yourself, I'm terrible! You're not going to say, my kids are absolute brats, misbehaved, spoiled. You're not going to say you're a terrible parent with no ability to parent well. No, what we do ingeniously is we apply it to our circumstance. Ah, oh, the kids are just like this because they're tired. The kids are like this because we stayed up late. Or they're probably hungry. I should have fed them before we came. Or the kids just need some playtime. So when we get home, if I you know, funnel them out into the backyard and let them run around, they'll be good. You notice how we do that? You notice that ingenious little, that person's a bad mom, whereas my circumstances just led to my children being bad right now. We're ingenious with this stuff. We're charitable with ourselves and harsh with other people. should be the opposite. We should be harder on our own sins and more charitable with other people. How did we switch it? Throughout the New Testament, we are told to practice the opposite. We are told to be just as, if not more, ruthless with the dealing of our own sin in the judging of ourselves in order to grow than we are with others. Apostle Paul actually wrote in 1 Corinthians 11.31, you know, that if we just judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. You hear that? If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And Jesus, when the religious leaders brought a woman caught in the sin of adultery to test Jesus, said to him, the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Stoning was an ancient uh, death sentence. The law of Moses condemns, or commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? In one of the most famous narratives in all of Scripture, right? Jesus knowing that these were men who loved to judge and loved to condemn and that they were filled to the brim with sins of their own that they were refusing to deal with, said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the text said, when they heard it, they went away one by one, starting with the oldest. So we look to you, older generation, to model for us what it means to put the stones down. Pick up the stone of condemnation and throw it if you have no sins worthy of God's condemnation in your own life. Otherwise, put the stone down and deal with your own sins before dragging other people into the court of your judgment. Again, listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, or listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote, if you were really concerned about truth, everybody here, We are concerned about truth, right? We will say we are truth people, right? We want truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, if you were really concerned about truth, you would be judging yourself. But you do not judge yourself, therefore your interest is not really truth. It's a great quote. So what are you concerned about? Are you concerned about truth? If so, then the first thing you do is, in the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, take the log out of your own eye before saying to others, hey, let me take that ugly speck out of yours. Until you deal with the log in your own eye, you are not qualified to be an eye doctor. And if so, if you're some judgmental speck finder, 
The call here is to grow in your charity, to grow in your grace, to be slow to condemn, to avoid imputing, imputing motives, to stop jumping at every speck you see in another's eye, to quit destroying the unity of the brethren and the witness of the church because people have sawdust in their eye. How can you say to your own brother, let me take the speck of dust from your own eye when there is the log in your own? And this, according to Jesus in verse 5, is the domain of the hypocrite. If this is you, this is the domain of the hypocrite. And hypocrite in this context means uh, the, an actor or a pretender. This is the domain of someone who is committed to pretending. If you don't want to be a hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye and then see what Jesus says, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Meaning... There is a time when judgment is okay. When you've dealt with the log in your eye. There is an appropriate time for gracious, restorative judgment. There is a time for each of us to help each other see clearly as we are consistently recognizing and working on our own obedience to Christ. So Jesus will end this section with a warning. Look at verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is a warning to those who ignore the commands, the command here, and go about broadcasting their judgments. Earlier in the text that we noted that the command is judge not that you not be judged, but judge by who? Remember what we said. We're going to be judged by the Lord with the measure we use. Because the relentlessly critical judge, that divisive type, the one with a pharisaical spirit, oftentimes reveals himself, according to Jude, to be worldly, devoid of the Holy Spirit. But also, your judgment will return to you from the peoples that you so enjoy judging. Sometimes it's best to just keep your judgments to yourself. To not give to dogs what is holy and to throw your pearls before pigs. Now, most people would have the good sense, right, not to throw pearls to pigs. Don't throw your pearls in a pig pen. Why? Because pigs don't, simply don't grasp the value of pearls, and instead of treating them carefully, they simply walk all over them, and the pearls will sink into the muck and under their feet, and they'll disappear. We understand that. We don't understand the, 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 this discussion about dogs here, though, do we? Because dogs, in our culture, we love our Fidos and our spots and we get them haircuts and we think they're so adorable and they're family members and we buy them the most luscious food. Some people's dogs eat better than me. However, dogs in the Roman Empire during this day represented filthy, vicious scavengers. Not your cute little house pets. This isn't Bear or Duke or whatever you name them. Dogs in the Roman Empire were held in low esteem, gross, mangy, savage, trash, scavenging, threatening, barking, tooth-bearing annoyances. If you read scripture, you will actually get a sense for culture's hatred of dogs as getting attacked or eaten by dogs was considered by the Jewish peoples of that day as a special curse of God upon a person for their wickedness. But I want to just note two things. We're almost done. Two things from 7-6. First, there comes a time when rebuking in love and laboring to help others see and delight in the good news of Jesus Christ or to help others repent of their sin and leave it behind 
when they reveal themselves to be too much in love with their sin and too stubbornly rebellious to heed your caring, kind words, if they continually refuse to hear and listen, there comes a time, as Jesus will model later in the book of Matthew, when it's appropriate to shake the dust off your feet and move on. Keep your pearls and cast them in another direction. It might even be that if you keep on going, they turn and attack you like dogs, right? In that text. Second, this might also be what you call instructive irony. Instructive irony. So you could read chapter 7, verse 6 in this way. If you think that your criticisms and judgments against others are such pearls, and you continually toss them at everyone you think to be dogs and swine, know this. There will come a point when those dogs turn on you and attack. So be very careful about your judgments. So in closing, if you would judge another correctly, if you would judge another appropriately, you must always focus on helping your brothers and sisters. If you ever just throw a judgment out there and then walk away from it without the foundational reason for that judgment being, how do I help? You're doing it wrong. Always focus on helping, not on condemning them because they don't measure up to your standard. After all, has any of us ever measured up to Jesus, the standard of Jesus? No. He was perfect. He is sinless. And yet, you know what? He did not thumb his nose at us. But instead, left his throne in heaven, took on flesh, made his dwelling among us, living a perfect life which he applies to us, dying the death that we deserve so our sins can be forgiven when we place our faith in him. Jesus is our model here. Jesus did did not come those many years ago to condemn, but to save all who trust in him. So we're going to close with a quote once again from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I want you to hear this. Believer, you should be so conscious of your own sin and your own unworthiness that when you find it in another, far from condemning, you feel like weeping. You are full of sympathy and compassion. You really do want to help because you have so enjoyed getting rid of the same thing in yourself that you want them to have the same pleasure and the same joy that you do. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we know that our Lord Jesus speaks hard words, words that are difficult for us to follow, difficult for us to hear, difficult for us to obey because all of us are in this battle against our flesh. We have the Spirit living in us and we want to do what is right and yet we have this part of us that continually fights against that Spirit and leads us sometimes to do the things that we didn't want to do. And so I pray for us as a church, for us as a body of believers in this area of judgment. I pray that we would fall into neither error of seeing judge not as a blanket statement against all judgment but that we would use judgment appropriately and in line with scriptural mandates and that we would not jump 
to the other extreme and ignore the command to judge not for a number of sinful reasons. Please give us the ability to be wise, obedient, and spiritual as we seek to apply this text in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.